1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we are. Verse 1. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God, his doctrine, may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So he's repeatedly telling him, giving a set of instructions, say, teach and exhort, command these things. This, was, this is an, a very unpopular verse. <laughs> and this was uh, a unique teaching. The um, people in Jesus' day, like the zealots, they wanted to throw off all Roman oppression uh, and um, they wanted to use violence. They're basically terrorists. They wanted to throw off the oppressors. The uh, Pharisees were legalists who wouldn't do one more thing than the law absolutely required. In fact, the Roman law was that a Roman soldier could conscript you to carry a load for a mile. So the Jews set up mile markers so that they wouldn't have to carry one, one extra inch more than they needed to. And that's where Jesus got the phrase to go the extra mile. If someone says to you, hey, carry this mile, you carry it too. To go above and beyond, to be gracious. And if Christianity had gone into the world saying, get rid of all slaveries and set all slaves free, then it probably would have been squashed, not accepted. But in order to win souls, um, it endured some injustice. And so he says, treat your, if you're a servant, treat your master good. And the way that we're going to get rid of slavery is by you loving your master and being a good servant, not by some rebellion or whatever. Christianity taught this nonviolent method of love and service and kindness and graciousness. And the, the, the teaching of Jesus, when you have an oppressive, tyrannical government like the Roman government telling you you've got to carry something for a mile, his response was carry it for him too. And this is a very counterculture uh, to our culture and to most cultures and the ideas. And so what's being taught here and what's being, they're com- being commanded to teach so that, so that the name of Christ will be honored is to, if you're a servant and you have to serve somebody, you give it your best and serve them and treat them with honor. See, the Bible teaches us to honor people who don't deserve honor. It doesn't say if your parent's a good parent, honor your father and mother. It just says honor your father and mother. It doesn't say if your husband's a a good husband, treat your husband with respect. It just says treat him with respect. It doesn't say if your wife is a loving, sweet woman, love her and treat her as Christ treated the church. It just gives a blanket statement, love your wife and treat her as Christ treated the church. What if your wife's mean jerk? Still supposed to love her. What if your husband is a mean jerk? You're still supposed to honor him and respect him. What if your what if your boss is a slave owner and you're a slave? Honor him. Do your best. Glorify Christ by being a faithful servant. And this concept is taught all through the New Testament. First Peter. This is the Apostle Peter talking. That what we just read was from Paul. This is from Peter. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and the gentle, okay, so not only to the good masters, but also to the harsh ones. Did you catch that? And you say, well, Kendall, we're not slaves anymore. We don't have slavery. Really? 
Try not paying your house payment. Quit your job and see what happens. Uh, the Bible says that the borrower is a servant, is a slave to the, the lender. You got any borrowed money? You borrow any money? Well, then you're a slave. And not just the ones that are gentle and nice, but the ones that are harsh. Your school teacher that's a jerk school teacher, still be nice. The boss that's a jerk, still be nice. The, the police officer who pulls you over and is rude, still, still be nice. Uh, you know? For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Jesus set the example of willingly suffering and not giving people what they deserved. He hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He willingly suffered and went to the cross so that you could be saved. And what this is teaching us is, when you're in this world, there will be injustice. News flash. Life isn't fair. Some people will be mean. Some people will be rude. Some people will be unjust. Some people will do you wrong. Uh, every time I turn around, somebody else's. <laughs> it's, uh, I've just had one insane thing after another in, in my, with my house. First they come and build this subdivision. And they build the subdivision thicker than they ought to. And the neighbors all fought, but... This big conglomerate paid off some council members and they voted it in. And then they told us they would deal with our road and all the, all the new traffic on our road. And instead of dealing with it, they made it worse and then put a fire station on our road. Now we get the fire trucks going up and down. And uh, it's, just, it's just been one thing. And then the company comes in and builds up their property 20 feet. Now all the water runs off their property. They used to go down to the creek. Now the water runs out. Now I got my backyards flooded all the time. Destroying my property value. Some kid racing on January 1st runs his car through a telephone pole in my front yard and, and uh, I go outside to help him and get sick and then uh, they knock down my cable, my phone wire and they have to redig all that. The housing subdivision next door digs onto my property, putting in a sidewalk and dug too far and went to my property. Dug up my gas line. I went without gas for a couple days and then had to put in a new line. Well, that line sent dirt through my thing and clogged it up and then my heater goes bad and they wouldn't take responsibility for it. But I know that the reason my, I had to buy a new furnace is because of dirt in my gas line. From, and so just one thing, and then water gets in from the flooding in my basement and they won't, or not my crawl space, they won't fix that. And it rotted and made some of my wood go soft and rot. I had to replace my whole sub floor, 7,500 bucks I didn't have and just one thing after another and I just gotta <sighs> and then I get a thing from last week from the city and they say they're gonna widen my road and take 10 feet out of my front yard <laughs> I just get one thing after another that's life it's not fair oh and by the way that kid never did come get all the glass out of my front yard my whole front yard's glass which I'm not worried about it anymore. The city's going to take it and pay me for it. So, <laughs> 10 feet of it. Um, uh, well, what really makes me mad is I've just paid uh, $1,900 to cut down a tree because the tree was rotten. I didn't want it to fall on the wires in the road or my house or whatever. And now they're going to come through and take that out anyway. So, I'm going to let them. Ah, anyway. 
Life's like that. You got worse stories. Life's unfair. How are we going to respond? If we do wrong and we suffer through it patiently, that's not commendable. We're just getting what we deserve. But if we, when we've done nothing wrong and people treat us wrong, we respond with kindness and gentleness and, you know, charity and love. And if when our boss or people in authority over us uh, abuse their authority and we respond in a Christ-like way, that's commendable before God. When you count somebody who isn't worthy of honor as if worthy of honor. It doesn't say they are worthy of honor. It says count them that. Kind of like you're not righteous, but because of faith God counts you as righteous. In the same way, they're not worthy of honor, but you count them as if they were worthy of honor. You treat your wife as if she's lovable even when she's not. You treat your husband as if he's worthy of respect, even if he's not. And you treat your boss worthy of honor, even when your boss isn't honorable. That's what Christ is calling us to. Why? Why would we do that? So God won't be blasphemed, it says there in 1 Timothy 6. Look at Titus 2.9. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Okay, so don't be a back-talker. Not pilfering, that means stealing. You know, it'd be pretty easy if you, were a th- if you were a slave and owned by somebody and they didn't treat you right and you were working for free to pocket a little bit of extra. Don't pilfer, don't steal, but showing good fidelity. Be faithful. That's what fidelity is faithful. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. You see, your actions and how you respond is your testimony. You are adorning the gospel. You're at one side of your mouth, you're saying, Jesus loves, Jesus forgives, Jesus died, Jesus' grace, Jesus loves us even when we don't deserve it. And then the other side of your mouth, you're demanding justice and wrath and anger and stealing and bitter and talking back and being rude. Those two things don't reconcile. You need to adorn the message of Jesus' grace and his massive grace that forgives all sin and his huge sacrifice on the cross for our sins and their sins, you need to adorn that with little acts of grace where you're forgiving the little things that are done against you because of the big forgiveness that God gave you. And so he's saying, if you're a slave, a bondservant, serve, why? Because the guy deserves, no. Because you want to honor Christ. Because you want to glorify God and the doctrine of the gospel. See, we serve others for Christ's sake. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. Is it because you fear and tremble your master? No, it's because you have fear and trembling towards who? Towards Christ. You serve these guys according to the flesh with with a sincere heart. You sincerely, honestly try to be a good servant. Why? For Christ. My teacher gave me a bunch of busy work. I don't want to do it for Christ. My boss gave me this lousy assignment job to do. I don't have to do everything around here. Do it with sincerity, with, with with a graciousness. And 
Not as men pleasers, not so your boss will pat you on the back or give you a promotion or you'll get an extra income. Not for, as men pleasers, but for bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Because you know God's watching. Whether your boss knows or pays attention or rewards, God will. If you, get, if you do everything you do in life with your best effort for Christ, to honor Christ, your, your boss may or may not notice. Others may or may not reward you. That's irrelevant. You're not working for that anyway. You're working for Christ. You want Christ to reward you. You want to adorn the gospel. And the, the crazy thing is, is that I've found is if you'll do that, if you'll work for Christ, do everything else for Christ, pretty soon people around you will start noticing and rewarding you as well. It's one of those crazy things. If you'll do what you need to do now, what you, what you don't want to do, if you'll do it now, later on, you'll be able to do the things you want to do. And you need to do it, the will of God from the heart, with good will, with good intention, not insincerely or half-heartedly, but with, with good will, as to the Lord, not men. Everything you do is for God, not men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Remember when I was in school once, I got this homework assignment from an English teacher, which I considered busy work. You had to write all these sentences using different verbs or whatever. And so I wrote the same sentence for each one of the things, I did it all the different ways that he said, saying, uh, I hate doing busy work. <laughs> and then I did it all the different verbs of all the different ways of saying, hey, basically saying, I think this is a bunch of stupid busy work and I don't appreciate it. <laughs> and that was the wrong attitude, was it? It didn't honor Christ. And the teacher, <laughs> I remember he gave me back my paper with an F on it, tore into four pieces which didn't say much for his maturity level either, but he ripped it in half, ripped it sideways, stuck it together, and put an F on it. Uh, I legit felt bad afterwards, not because I got an F, but because I hurt that teacher, who was really a nice guy. And w sometimes in life, we're like, oh, this is stupid what I gotta, I'm asked to do. But we, we're called to do stuff out of a good heart and to give stuff our best and our all and to do it that way for Christ. What if, instead of second-guessing the leaders at, at your work, what if they're always complaining about, boy, they'd have been smarter if they did this? Yeah, sometimes you know better than your boss. It's true. But what if sometimes we, we just gave our all and and we, we honored Christ by just doing what we required of us and do it with a passion and, a, and an excellence for Christ. What if, what if we changed our attitude? There's a lot of people that hate their job and the reason they hate it isn't because the job is all that bad, but because of their attitude. Because it's not what they want. And so they're throwing a temper tantrum and a little fit because it's not my perfect dream job and so, well, this place stinks, my boss is no good, my co-workers are You know, um, I went to a taco place for lunch today. That lady was working. 
you know, with that attitude. And it was not pleasant. I'm like, sorry, Annie, normally they're nice here. <laughs> but th- this lady was obviously having a bad, bad day. I remember one time I took the youth group from Oak Forest. This was years ago. And we went to Cincinnati for an event at Cincinnati uh, Bible College. And afterwards we went out to re- eat at this restaurant that I liked called The Diner Downtown. And it was busy. And this waitress had all, not, you know, there's like 20 kids around the table and she's trying to get all our orders and get everything and it was busy and something got messed up and she got frustrated. She was very rude with us. Uh, she didn't like that we were there and you know, it was this big order and she's had all these other tables and she was getting really fussy and she got something wrong in the order and we asked her to fix it and that made her more mad and she was just grumpy and you've had waitresses like this. And maybe you've been a waitress and felt like this. And she was obviously just miserable. And so the kids were like, we oughtn't give her any a tip. She doesn't deserve a tip. She's just... And I said, I said, well, that's one thing we could do. Or we could give her a really big tip. When she knows, she, she thinks she's not getting a tip right now. She's given up on trying to serve us good because she thinks she's not getting a tip. So what if we gave her a really big one? And so I had the kids empty their pockets of all their, and we, and we had this huge like, I don't know what it was, an $800 tip. And left it there in Big Paul. Some of it was change, <laughs> you know, because of kids. And, uh, and then one of the girls wrote a note. We couldn't help but notice you were having a bad night. We hope that things go better tomorrow. Love, Oak Forest Church of Christ Youth Group. And left it. I went out and I'm loading them in the church van. And I could look back in and see at the table the girl come up and cry. And there's a way that you can honor Christ. There's a way that you can glorify Christ. Um, that ironically is not the biggest tip I've ever given. <laughs> One time at Hillsborough Family Camp, I gave a pizza guy a $500 tip. But that's another story for another time. The, uh, the, uh, let's just say that everybody in the entire place chipped in $1.00. <laughs> And gave him a $500 tip and then sang him a song. But anyway, um, we can know uh, that we're making a difference for Christ in every situation by serving Christ with goodwill. Um, And we can know that whatever we do, Christ is going to reward it, whether slave or free. He doesn't discriminate. And if you will do the right thing, the loving thing, the gracious thing, the good thing, and you'll bear up under suffering. In fact, we just read that. To, we're called to that. We're called to suffer, to do good, even when people don't deserve it. We're called to be gracious towards people. If we'll do that, we'll be rewarded by Christ. So, he's telling the, the people that work for servants, uh, treat them good. And then he says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, healthy words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, uh, reviling excuse me, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth 
who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, from such withdraw yourself. So he's like, people who won't teach this kind of thing, people who won't teach um, to, to love your enemies, to be kind to those, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who persecute you, then you're not just going against Christian doctrine, you're going against Christ who taught it. This, don't let anybody teach you something else that's not in accord with the words of Christ. J Jesus came up with this idea of loving your enemies. Jesus came up with this idea of praying for those who persecute you, of going the extra mile, of serving those who, who want to harm you, of showing love to people who hate you. That's Jesus' idea. That's Jesus' doctrine. It's core to the message of Christianity. And don't let anybody teach anything else. We should withdraw from some people. Look what it says. From such, withdraw yourself. There's some people we should withdraw from. Look at Matthew 15, 2. The disciples came to him and said, did you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Jesus said something the poor Pharisees didn't like. And he replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into a pit. People who won't align themselves with the teaching of Jesus are plants that were not planted by the heavenly Father and they're going to be uprooted. Churches and pastors and so-called Christians who don't teach what the Bible teaches are plants planted not by the Heavenly Father. They're weeds sown in the night by Satan and his emissaries among the wheat. Jesus predicted that in another parable. There's, there's churches and teachers and preachers and doctrine that are not from God. They're spawn of Satan himself. It's the doctrine of demons. There's false teachings and false brothers and people who teach other things and live a different way than the doctrine of Christ and people who rebel against the basic core doctrines of Christianity withdraw yourself. They're blind guides. They're going to end up in the ditch and if you follow them, you'll, you'll end up in the pit too. There's some people, you should just leave them. You tried talking to them. You tried reasoning with them. They wouldn't listen. They're offended by you and your very presence and existence and your belief. Stop trying to please those people. Stop trying to unify with those people. Stop trying to act like they're your fellow Christian. When they're not from the same seed and they weren't planted by the Heavenly Father and they're going to be uprooted and they're going to drag you into a pit if you follow them. Leave them. Some people we should withdraw from. Romans 16, 17 says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. People who cause division and offense and teach doctrine contrary to what you learned from the apostles, avoid them. There's some people you should withdraw from. 2 Timothy 3, 5, Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. See, there's some people, they, they, they have a form of godliness, but they don't live in the power of it. Avoid those people. There's some people you should withdraw from. Titus 3.10, warn a divisive person once, warn him a second time, after that have nothing to do with him. There's some people you should withdraw from. And divisive people are one of those people. If the leaders of a church... Don't warn and then remove a continually divisive person. They'll split the whole congregation. And it's better to split off one little chunk than let them split the place down the middle. 
And that's what you'll do if you leave them. And a, a minor subtraction is better than a huge division. There's some people you should withdraw from. Who? False teachers and false doctrine. Look at Galatians 2.4. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and make us slaves. See, there's some people who want to take us back to slavery. When you know the truth, the truth will set you. And so if you teach a lie, what will it do? It'll enslave you. False doctrine and lies enslave people. They enslave people to addictions, to their pride, and to their lust, and to their greed. And that's what we're going to see what the ultimate motive is going to be for some of these false teachers is pride and greed. It's a terrible problem. They're obsessed with disputes, it says here in this passage in 1 Timothy 6. But look what else he says in 1 Timothy 1.4. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is by faith. You see, these people like dispute. They get some sort of uh, jollies off of being in an argument. You've met these people before. They, they were um, born in the objective case in the kickative mood, as my dad always used to say. Uh, they, uh, it's like they were baptized in pickle juice. They like to, they're just sour pusses and they want to argue about anything. And they, they, they say they're playing devil's advocate, but really they're just devils. Remind them of these things charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. There's some people who sit around and argue over the definition of words to no profit. And they'll argue, well, you know, what does the word for mean? In Acts 2.38. Or what does, what is it, there's the definite article before God in John 1.1. 1, 1, and they'll, they'll argue over the definition of words. Constantly obsessed with obviously taking scriptures out of context, uh, trying to make it say something that contradicts other plain teachings of the Bible by manipulating a word, trying to change the definition of words. You know, when your legal argument for your defense is, well, it depends on what your definition of the word is, is you're messed up. When you're striving over words, you're obsessed with disputes. Look at 2 Timothy 2.23. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Titus 3.9. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they're unprofitable and useless. So again and again, in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, it's saying the same thing over and over again. There are people who like disputes and they like arguments. Seriously, during the Middle Ages, there was a whole group of monks in the Catholic Church who fought with each other uh, to the point of excommunication and wanting to call the others heretics, arguing over how many angels could dance on the pen of a needle. I'm not joking. Stupid stuff. Pointless stuff. Worthless stuff. They want to argue over, they want to major in minors, and then, because if they can get you to believe their one little weird doctrine, it wasn't a cross. The Jehovah Witnesses say it was just a poll. Or, you know, just who cares? Who cares what the shape of it was? They major in minors so that you'll follow after them. So they have to believe in them so that you can become one of their disciples. Philippians 2.14 Do all things without complaining and disputing. You can contend for the faith 
without being contentious. Look, there are hills worth dying on and there are arguments not worth having. And there are things worth discussing if there's an honest discussion. But when it's just somebody's just being argumentative and you realize it doesn't matter what I say, they just want to be argumentative, disengage. Because when it comes to being stupid and petty, they're better than you and they're going to win at it. They're just going to suck you into their world. There's a time to answer a fool according to his folly and there's a time to not answer a fool according to his folly. Know the difference. And you don't get involved with people who are obsessed with disputes. They're always, always, always dealing in the controversial on purpose because they get their jollies off arguing. That kind of person, avoid. What are the motives of a false teacher? Well, Philippians says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife, but some from goodwill. What's the motive for some people preaching Christ? Envy and strife. Some people are out there preaching Christ, trying to grow churches for their own glory. Out of envy and strife. Some people do it. Some of the most jealous people I've ever seen in my life, I'm ashamed to say, are preachers. Some of the most power-hungry people I've ever seen in my life, I'm ashamed to say, are elders. Some of the people with the the biggest jealousy problems have been people in the church. Some people do what they do in church out of envy and strife. I remember when I was a kid, we were in this church, and on Sunday nights we, we were having desserts before Sunday night church. We started having a little food before. And there'd be some finger foods and some desserts, and different ladies took turns, right? And they took turns doing this, and, and we do it every Sunday night, and the attendance on Sunday night went way up, and everybody was coming for a meal and hanging out for fellowship, and we, we had a great worship time, and it was just wonderful, and it went on for several months. And uh, we converted some people, and this new lady came into church, and she was a real good cook, and she was so excited, and she, she put her name on the list to volunteer to be one of the people to make food one of the nights on Sunday nights. And she came to church, and she made, I don't know what, she made something hot and warm pizza or something. I don't know what it was. It wasn't just finger food sandwiches and, and a few desserts, but she made like a little spread, and all oh, the men in the church were all making over it. Oh, honey, did you taste this? Isn't she a good cook? Blah, 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 little green monster. <laughs> They're complaining and what's well, gonna we were thought it was just desserts and sandwiches, you know, and they're like and they're fighting and then the, the lady got her feelings hurt and started crying and quit coming to church and the people were arguing about it and the elder said, All right, look, no more meals. If we're gonna argue we'll have no more meals and they stopped doing the meals and the attendants and all that fellowship and all that fun and all that good gone. Envy and strife. Stupidity, no place for it in the church. Some people's motive is pride. And jealousy is a great destroyer of the work of God. Because somebody else got glory. Some people can't stand it when somebody else gets up and sings a special and everybody likes it and they do a good job because they're comparing. Well, they didn't like it as much when I sang. (laughs) Or... You know, preachers. Well, he got invited to preach here and got invited to preach there and I didn't get invited... Shouldn't you just be glad that the gospel is being preached? The lives are being changed? You know? I know I'm never going to be the preacher my dad was or even my brother Jeff is. But that's not going to keep me from preaching. I might not be the best, but I can help somebody. What do you got to compare for? 
The Bible says when you compare yourselves with yourselves, you're foolish. I'll, I, I'm not worried about being the best in the world. I'm worried about being the best I can be for Christ. I'm just trying to be the best I can be for Jesus. Who cares about envy and strife? And then look at the other motive. They must be silenced because they're disputing, whole, uh, disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. I think the King James said, filthy lucre. <laughs> I always thought that was a funny phrase. I don't know why, because Dad, Dad would read this verse when I was a kid, and, for filthy lucre. And I'm like, I don't know why that was such a funny thing to me. It still is. Filthy lucre. Dishonest gain for money. Some people, the motive is pride. For some people, the motive is greed. But those are wicked motives. And that's what leads to disputes and wrangling and fighting. It, what did James say? Why is, there, why is there discord among you? Why are you fighting with each other? Because somebody didn't get what they wanted. So you're attacking and biting each other and devouring each other. Be careful you don't destroy one another. The reason some people aren't getting what they want is because when they do pray, they pray out of selfish motives. Or they don't pray at all. And there's this divisiveness and there's this fighting going on because you didn't get the widow thing you want. You're not looking at the big picture about honoring Christ or honoring His kingdom. Now, some people get caught up in that prideful dispute. Look, don't try to win arguments. Win people. And when you see you can't win the person, don't bother winning the argument. Walk away. Don't get caught up in this disputes and wrangling and fighting. Some people disengage. And uh, <clears throat> I wish back in that circumstance um, that those elders had dealt with the dis divisive women in the church. And, and dealt with these gossiping, divisive women and not stop the meal, but shut the mouths of those divisive women. But uh, they just wouldn't deal with their wives that way. Careful who you ordain. What is true gain? So he talks about the motive for some people's filthy lucre, uh, dishonest gain. Okay? Well, what's true gain? What's good gain? Some people are after money. Some people are after pride. What should we be after? Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. We're too obsessed with our standard of living and not focused enough on our quality of living. Your standard of living is very different than your quality of life. There's some people who their standard of living goes through the roof when they get wealth. But they're much less happy. There's some people who get all this money and all it does is cause problems. Look at the people who win the lottery. Their standard of living goes up, their quality of life goes down. There's some people who um, make more and more and more money, but they're not happier. You know, think about one of the happiest times in your life. Was it when your standard of living was highest? Or was it when you were content? See, godliness with contentment, that's real wealth. That's real gain. For we brought nothing into this world, 
and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. We got something to eat. We got clothes on. We should be content. I go do a week of church camp. Let's say the weeks I went to Rainbow Camp or Mahoning Valley or these camp. I go there with basically my clothes and a guitar. They provide the food. Some camps better than others. But I'm content all week. I'm having fun. I'm teaching kids. I'm leading classes. I'm doing faculty hunts at night. I'm going swimming. I'm teaching more classes and doing worship and playing guitar around the campfire. I don't have a house. I don't have a car. I don't have... All I got is my food and clothing, but I'm content as can be. Because you're not going to keep any of this stuff here in this life. Why do we have to have that? You need to be able to be content with very, very little. Because you're not going to keep any of this stuff. All of this stuff we're just not keeping. What is true gain? What is true quality of life? What, wouldn't it be horrible if you went all the way through life trying to gain stuff but never had contentment? Went through life gaining stuff but never had a quality of life worth living. How horrible that would be. What's really the priority here? Look what it says in Philippians 4.11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned whatever state I am to be content. I know what it is to be abased and I know what it is to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now verse 13 is the popular one. And people like to take that verse, pull it out of context, and try to make it mean, I can do whatever I dream through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what it means. Philippians 4.13 does not mean you can do whatever you want through Christ who strengthens you. It means you can do whatever you don't want through Christ who strengthens you. It means whether you're rich or you're poor, you're hungry or you're well-fed, whether things are up or down, you can be content and you can handle it through Christ who gives you strength. Economic boom, you can handle it. Economic downturn, you can handle it. Even David said, even if war break out against me, uh, he, he trusted in the Lord. Didn't matter. No matter what happened, he knew God was with him, God was going to protect him, God was watching over him, and he could be content. Can you be content even when there's a death in the family? Or even when you get the diagnosis? Or when you lose a job? Or you lose a spouse? You lose a child? Can you handle all things? What this verse is saying is that you can, you can handle whatever comes at you through Christ who gives you strength. Because it's not your circumstances that determine things. It's your response. Your happiness, your contentment, your joy is dependent upon your faith and your reaction, not to your circumstance. It's your choice and how you react and your faith that's going to lead to your contentment and your peace. Not the circumstances. If you're waiting on the right circumstances to be happy, you'll be waiting forever. You can be happy today. You can be content now. 
through faith in Christ. Paul says that's the secret to true gain. And you can't take it with you. Look what Job said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you know when Job said that? He just had all of his livestock stolen. He was the wealthiest man in the East, and he just lost it all in a single day. And his kids all just died in a tornado that hit his house and flattened one of his mansions and left his kids all dead. He lost all his children and all his wealth in one fell sweep. And his response was, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he didn't curse God and he didn't blame God. There were times he wondered why. But he didn't, he didn't blaspheme God. He realized he wasn't going to keep it anyway. But what had Job done before that? He'd offer sacrifices as the patriarch of his family. And every day he offered sacrifices and prayed for his children that God would forgive him any sins. And so what did Job know about his kids? That they were saved and ready to go. He lost them. He missed them. That broke his heart. He sat there in ashes and wept. But he didn't have to worry about their spiritual condition because he'd taken care of that. And he could see him again. And he could have faith. And you're not keeping your kids. You're not keeping your spouse. You're not keeping your house. You're not keeping your cars. Um... The only thing you can take with you are souls. You can't take any of this wealth. Well, stop living for money. You can't keep it. You know, Dad always used to say, you never saw you know, a, a hearse hauling a U-Haul. Uh, that's another story for another time. I actually did once, but anyhow. Uh, the point is still true, though. Nobody's taking it with them. Ecclesiastes 5, 16 and 17. Excuse me, 5, 15 and 16. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return. To go as he came, and shall take nothing from his labor with which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, he shall go. And what profit has he who labored for the wind? Yeah. He's right. It's terrible. If you're living for here and now and for the stuff of this earth, your whole life is a waste. You're laboring for the wind. The government will take it. Moth and rust and time will take it. Bills will take it. Wars will take it. You will not keep it. And death will take you. You need to be thinking about forever. You need to be thinking about eternity. You need to be thinking about how you spend your time and your money and your house and your car and how you can leverage everything you own and everything God has made you a steward of for this short little brief flash in the pan on this earth and how you can leverage every ounce of your wealth, time, material possession and land and inheritance that your parents gave you and the family heirlooms and everything else you ever touch. How can I leverage that for something eternal and for a soul that will make a difference in eternity? How can I turn my dollar bills into souls one? 
How can I turn my nice house into fellowship and Bible study and conversion of souls? How can I use my cars for the kingdom? Because you're not taking that stuff with you. The best you can do with it is use it as a seed to sow something spiritual in someone else's life. You can be content with the bare necessities. Now, I couldn't help but read this verse and not think of Mowgli and Baloo, you know, and squeezing the bananas and bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. It's pretty good advice, really. Be content. Hebrews says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be without covetousness. Stop wanting all the time. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content. Know where God is taking you. Don't be in a hurry. Don't have to have everything now. Ecclesiastes 3, 12-13. I know that Nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also, every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor. It's the gift of God. If you've ever read the book The Hobbit by J.R. Tolkien, the whole point of it is the little hobbits are contrasted with the uh, greedy dwarves. And the dwarves uh, dug for gold and for jewels in the mountain and all they cared about was gold. And, and once they got it, then they didn't want to share it with people who were in need, who'd helped them along the way. And so they fought wars with it. And the Battle of Seven Armies was all about this useless war that didn't need to happen. And the war happens and all kinds of people and creatures die. And the king of the dwarves is lying there and had, had accused the poor little hobbit of being a coward when he wasn't. He was the bravest one of all of them. Because he didn't want some useless war over greed. And as the king of the dwar- dwarves lays there dying, he apologizes for calling him a coward and, and said, you know, if more people in the world preferred good food and cheer and fellowship to hoarded gold, it'd be a better world. It is better have a dry crust of bread with happiness and love than have a feast in a mansion with quarreling, Proverbs teaches us. Your standard of living does not dictate your quality of life. And there's some very poor, hard-working families who don't have much But they have each other and they have love and they have their family and they have God and they're the happiest of all. And some of you know just what I'm talking about because you've been a part of that happy little throng. You didn't have much. You grew up during hard times. But you worked hard. You loved hard. You were there for each other. You were around the Lord's table each week. You trusted in God. You weren't rich didn't have the TVs and the cell phones and all the stuff but you were happy 
having stuff and a quality uh, um, um, standard of living does not equal quality of life. And we all know that's true, so why don't we live like it? Nothing's better than to rejoice and do good in your life. Enjoy your food. Be a good person. Rejoice. Thank God. Nothing's better. Everything else is a chasing after the wind. And your attentions matter. Look at verse 9 through 11. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Catch that? Now, what did he say was the motive of the false teachers? Filthy lucre. And then what's he say is great gain? What's real gain? Contentment with godliness. And then he says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. If you have this abiding longing to be rich, you are going to fall into temptation and into a snare. It's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to work hard and to become successful. But the desire to be rich for being rich's sake is a sin. And it will lead you into temptation and snare. And into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Perdition could be translated as damnation. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from their faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, oh man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, Gentleness. Sounds like fruit of the Spirit to me. What should you flee? Greed and a desire to be rich. What should you pursue? Character. Virtue. Be rich in your person. Not in your bank account. Is it wrong to be rich? No. Is it a sin to have lots of money? No. Is it a sin to want to? Yes. The sin of desiring wealth. Look at Proverbs 15.27. For he who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. If you're greedy for money, you're not just going to bring trouble on you. You're going to be trouble on your wife. You're going to be in trouble on your kids. You're going to be in trouble on your parents. You're going to be in trouble on your whole house. And if you're part of the house of God and you're greedy for money as a Christian, you're going to be in trouble on your whole church. Greed is a sin. Now, P.S. Postscript. This is why the lottery is a sin. Kendall, what's wrong with the lottery? Where does the Bible say it's wrong to gamble? I don't see anywhere where it says in the Bible that it's wrong to gamble. I'm mean, just doing it for a little bit of entertainment. You know, if I win some extra money, hey, great. There's one reason to play the lottery. Is you want to, well, you know. Money, 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 money. Right? You want to get rich. That's the reason people play the lottery. Beyond the fact 
that you waste your money due to the odds and the vast majority of people who play the lottery never win beyond the fact that you're totally throwing money down a hole. And it's a, my brother Todd says that the lottery is a tax on the mathematically stupid. And beyond the fact you're taking money without work, which is wrong, the Bible says to earn what you get, beyond the fact that you're wasting money and not going to win, and if you did win, you're taking without working, which is evil, beyond preying upon the most vulnerable, because who plays the lottery on average? Rich people? No. Rich people aren't going, yeah, then go play the lottery. <laughs> no, they don't. It's the person who's like, man, I'm poor. <sighs> I'm going to give up a pack of cigarettes this week to get an extra lottery ticket. They don't have anything to start with. The vast majority of people who are playing the lottery are already impoverished. And they're looking for the golden ticket and the way out of that poverty. And then when they win, they have no idea how to manage money and cannot handle that wealth and destroy their lives and their families and their whole houses. And all I, got, I don't have time to read the stories of people who won the lottery and ruined the lives of them and their kids and their grandkids. Divorces, drug addictions, overdose, suicide. The vast majority of people, like over 80% of people who've won over a million dollars in the lottery, say later, within the next five years, they wish they hadn't won. Something like 70% of them within 10 years don't have any of it left. It's all gone. They, they blow it. A fool and his money are soon parted. It's preying upon the most vulnerable, on the poor who are desperate. The lottery is evil. Gambling is evil. It's wrong. Why? Because there's one reason you do it. Because you want to be rich. And wanting to be rich is a sin. People say to me, is gambling a sin? No, but the motive behind it is. Because there's nobody who plays the lottery who doesn't want to get rich. And it's a sin to want to get rich. You will bring trouble on your house. You are going to pierce yourself and your family with many grieves and with many lusts. With many temptations that you don't need. In the book of Proverbs chapter 30, it says, just want your daily bread. The the, the guy says, don't pr pray to God, don't make me rich so that I, don't, I think I don't need you and I forget you and don't make me poor so that I steal bread and dishonor your name. Just give me my daily bread. And I tell you, the best place to be and what you should pray for, if you want to pray about anything at all, is just God give me what I need today. And trust Him from day to day. Because that builds trust in God and it keeps you from out of the poorhouse and it keeps you from greed. There's a famous proverb in the book of Proverbs that says that the rich man can ransom, pay the ransom to get himself back when he's kidnapped. But the poor man never gets kidnapped. Yeah, oh yeah, you can pay for all kinds of stuff when you're rich. But it's paying for problems that you wouldn't have had if you weren't rich. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you seek because you have a way of finding it. The love of money. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, it does not say the love of money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So it causes lots of evil, but it is not the root of every evil. 
That's not what it says. It's often misquoted. Jesus said this in 624 of Matthew. No one can serve two masters. You hate one, love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It says this, no one can serve two masters. Either hate one, love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's told to us in Matthew. It's told us to in Luke. You can't serve God and money. Pick one. Who do you love? Who do you serve? Who are you devoted to? When it comes down to money or God, who wins with your time and your devotion? Which one do you despise? And which one do you love? Which one is your master? And which one is your servant? Money is like fire. It's a wonderful servant and a terrible master. And don't let it be your master. Um, they pierce themselves with many sorrows. Proverbs says, a man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. They say, no kindle. I've seen people pursue riches and they get wealth. Yeah, but poverty comes upon them. When? When they die. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Even when you succeed in greed, it kills you. When you're greedy and you get successful and you actually get the money you were greedy for, that's the worst thing of all. Because then it turns around and it destroys you. You think that wealth did Elvis good? You think it made Michael Jackson a better man? Think it helped out? These famous people get all this, they think they're better off? No. Greed and wealth can corrupt and destroy. They pierce themselves with many sorrows. So flee it. Therefore, my beloved, free from, flee from idolatry. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 says. And then Colossians says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is... Idolatry. Greed is a form of idolatry and we're told to free, flee from idolatry. So we should flee from greed. And that's exactly what Paul tells Timothy to do. If you catch yourself being motivated by a love of money, run. There's a rich young ruler. He was moral. He loved his wife. He loved his father and mother. He, he was very good at keeping lots of things of the law. But Jesus saw he had one problem left. What was it? greed. He said, sell everything you got, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the guy was very rich, and he went, he went away happy and content. No. He went away what? Sad. Because he loved money too much. If you see yourself in that place, get rid of it. If you're being tempted by money, flee it. When we're done with our break, we'll talk about what we're supposed to pursue. So let's take our break. So we're not supposed to pursue that filthy lucre. And we, um, when you, uh, I, I, I was just listening to a study the other day, like, um, 
they'd done a study about millionaires in America. And uh, when they did million, when they studied the millionaires in America, um, all of the TV stars, movie stars, um, musicians, sports figures, all the popular millionaires that we know, make up less than 1% of the millionaires in this country. The vast majority of millionaires in this country made their millions not trying to be a millionaires, but just by providing basic human services. They were a plumber, or they were a food service, they were, they were a guy, they started a plumbing business and they pretty soon they hired another truck and hired another, next thing you know, they got a plumbing business and you know, they, they got a cheesy commercial on TV, you know, 1-800-FLUSH, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, and uh, they're just, um, you know, they're, they're billionaire, are a millionaire. And, and I've also, also found out that the average vehicle driven by a millionaire in the United States of America is a Ford F-150 pickup. And that's what I drive. I'm on my way, <laughs> right? So, uh, but what it is, is most people who are millionaires, when they asked them, was their goal to make money? No, some like 60, 70%, their goal was just, they just wanted to provide for their family. They're just wanting to, you know, they're just trying to provide for the family. They worked hard and, and their business took off and they became more and more successful. And they all said the same thing. The number one thing that got them there was hard work. And um, it's not a sin to be rich. And, and in fact, if you, if you work hard and you're industrious, there's a high probability you're going to be successful. But if that's the goal, if wealth is the goal, then your, your, your aim is off and it's going to pierce you with many griefs. And even when you succeed, it's going to destroy you. The book of Proverbs talks about how ill-gotten gain and gain gotten by wrong means or, or for the wrong motives uh, causes all this trouble. But then it talks about that there's a wealth that comes without the problems. And the wealth that comes without the problems is the one of the generous man who worked hard and slowly over time amassed his wealth. And the vast majority of these people that are millionaires also didn't become that overnight. It took them a couple decades. It, it, um, an inheritance quickly gained, Proverbs says, is not kept. And when you get rich too quick, you don't know how to manage it or keep it, and you won't. And so uh, wealth is not wrong to have, but if your motives are wrong and you're not generous with the wealth that God gives you, then it's going to pierce you with many griefs. So what should you be pursuing instead of wealth? You should be pursuing virtue. Because whether you become wealthy or not, you have the greater riches. You don't, you, whether you have the best um, uh, you know, of wealth or not, you have the quality of life you wanted. Because the happiness and the contentment that you want comes from these virtues, not from amassing possessions. And true happiness comes from righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Now, some people like to act like the fruit of the Spirit or something that you know, falls on your head like Newton's apple. Well, oh, I got zapped by the Holy Spirit. Now I'm patient. You know, and that's how we pray for patience. Lord, give me patience. That's not how he gives it. He doesn't go, now you're like, oh, wow, man, I'm so patient. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Following virtues, they must be, they don't happen naturally. 
I mean, are you naturally patient? Me either. It requires effort. They must be pursued. They're granted against our will. God doesn't wave the magic Holy Spirit wand and zap you with these virtues. These are things you have to go after. It's a process of sanctification. Now, He grants you forgiveness and considers you righteous even when you haven't been in art. But in the pursuit of righteousness, you have to exercise effort and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have to work at it. It turns out that being righteous takes effort. It turns out that seeking godliness requires you to figure out what godliness is and pursue it. It takes plan and action and effort and study. To have faith, that doesn't just, you don't get zapped with it. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. You've got you to study. You've got to learn. You've got to grow. You've got to take some steps of faith to get more faith. You've got to invest what you have to, to get back more. Love? Love doesn't just happen. Read 1 Corinthians 13. They're not things you're zapped with. They're things you choose to do. It's a choice. You've got to go after it. Some people go after money. After greed and wealth and opulence. And they get it and they find out it just pierces them with many griefs. But if you go after virtue and get it, then you've got that real godliness and contentment. You get the quality of life, not just the high standard of living not just the house in the suburbs the two cars and the wife and the 2.4 children in the american dream right and we don't need to talk about which one of you is the 0.4 child the you get the real you get the page the gentleness you're not naturally gentle you have to work at this you have to pursue virtue the person who has these characteristics had to go after it. No one accidentally gets them. Oops, I ended up godly and in heaven. How did I get here? Doesn't happen. You have to pursue what's right. You have to go after it. With the same gusto that Musk is going after Mars. With the same gusto that... Uh, uh, the guy from Microsoft uh, ripped everybody off and then now tries to inject everyone. That same amount of effort you need to put into pursuing righteousness. What should we pursue? These things. And if you pursue these things, you won't just have what you need. You'll have the quality of life that you really want. You'll have the joy of the Lord and the peace now look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith, Paul says. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing for which he will manifest in his own time. So, it's a fight to pursue godliness. To pursue righteousness and faith and love and patience and gentleness. It's a battle. The devil is going to tempt you tomorrow to be impatient. 
He's going to tempt you to operate on sight and not on faith. He's going to tempt you to operate out of anger and rage, not out of love. He's going to tempt you to, to be harsh instead of gentle. He's going to tempt you to respond as the world does. He's going to tempt you with greed and pride to pursue those things. He's going to tempt you to have the wrong attitude towards your coworkers and your boss and your family. And you've got to fight. You've got to fight the good fight. You've got to work at it. You're being attacked. The devil is coming into your life. He's like a lion roaring in the night seeking whom he's devour, and he wants to destroy you. He wants to drop missiles in on you and destroy your patience. Destroy your gentleness. Destroy your godliness. He wants to compromise your righteousness. He's trying to destroy you. And you have to fight the good fight. You've got to pursue those good things. You can't sit back and act like they're just going to come to you without that f- terrible four-letter word. Work. You've got you to give effort. You've got to seek Pursue and fight to do what's right. Lay hold of eternal life to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence. You've got to lay hold of it. Yeah, God gives it to you free and you can't earn it, but you've got to take it. You've got to do your part and receive it. I could give you a free gift of a million dollars, but if you won't reach out your hand and take the check, I can't give you the money. If you won't take it to your bank and deposit it, if you won't endorse the check and deposit it into the account, I can't give you a million dollars even if it's a free gift. You have to lay hold of it. You've got to pursue it. You've got to do your part to receive it. I can give you a gift, but you've got to take the wrapping off and open it up. You've got to take it out and use whatever I give you. A doctor can give you medicine, but you've got to take it. Doctor can give you advice on how to have good health, but you have to listen to him. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make the horse drink. You've got to lay hold of it. To that salvation to which you were called. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until Lord Jesus Christ appearing which he will manifest in his own time. Keep it till the end of the world. <laughs> Keep it till as long as you're here. Okay, so let's fight the good fight. It says this in Timothy 1.18. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command to keep with the prophecies once made about you so that by calling them you may fight the battle well. Paul is constantly telling Timothy, fight the good fight, fight well, fight the battle, fight. There is a part of the Christian life that's a battle. Ephesians 6 makes it plain to us. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. That's why we've got to put on the spiritual armor every day. You are in a spiritual battle. Whether you recognize it or not, you are in a battle. You can sit there and act like it's not happening, but that's not going to keep the bombs from dropping on you. You can sit there and act like it's not happening, but it's not going to keep the enemy from advancing. You have to fight the good fight of faith. And it comes from faith. And you've got to fight it. Look what Paul says in 2 Timothy at the end of his life. I've fought the good fight. 
I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. See, what fight was Paul fighting? To keep the faith. What race was he running that he needed to finish? To keep the faith. He finished strong. He stayed true to the end. He didn't give up on his faith in Christ. He didn't give up on his faith in the gospel. He didn't swerve after false doctrine. He didn't chase after pride or lust or greed. He didn't go off and forget God. He didn't betray Him with His actions. To the very end, He kept serving and striving and running. And now it was revealed to Him that He's about to die and He's at the end of His life and Nero's about to chop His head off. And He writes to Timothy and He says, I've fought the good fight. Finished the race. I did it. I'm at the finish line. Won't that feel good? I was going through my office, getting stuff ready to try to sell my home, and Annie was visiting, and we were talking about Dad, and he passed away a year ago on the 24th, and I found a CD that Dad had made years ago where he sang with some, some tracks. And uh, Dad had a booming voice, and some people loved to hear Dad sing, so he'd make these uh, CDs for people, and him singing with tracks and so here I had that CD of dad singing and I put it in and he was singing Beulah Land how he was kind of homesick for a country to which he'd never been and uh, I got to thinking dad dad made it he fought the fight he finished the race no more striving no more battling he crossed the line. He's home free. But we're not there yet. We're still in this. We haven't finished. We're still running. Our race is still marked out. We have people yet to, to win. Souls yet to reach. Service yet to give. Sins yet to forgive. Graciousness yet to show. Hungry people yet to feed. Naked people yet to clothe. Sick people yet to minister to. People in jail that we still need to visit. We've got love yet to give. and Sermons yet to write. Lessons yet to teach. Food yet to feed people. Compassion yet to show to the hurting. Tears yet to cry. Pains yet to deal with. Suffering and bodily physical pain yet to endure. But fight. Pursue this righteousness. Keep running. Fight the good fight of faith. So that when it's all said and done, you can say, I finished strong. I grew stronger and stronger. And I held on to my faith and I didn't give it up. And the world tried to shame me out of it. Bribe me out of it. Scare me out of it intimidate me out of it mock me out of it but I did not let go of my faith and they made fun of me and they belittled me and they uh, they pushed me away and they humiliated me and then they condemned me and told me I'm terrible but I held on to what the Bible teaches and I finished I endured every persecution every hardship every moment of hunger and thirst and going without because I knew where I was headed. And I wasn't living for pride or lust or greed. I was living 
for eternity. Fight the good fight. Pursue the good thing. Lay hold of it. Philippians says this. This is Philippians 3, 12. Well, Kindle, I thought we were already saved. Why do we got to lay hold of it? If we already saved, why do we got to lay hold of it? Because we haven't laid hold of eternal life yet. We're not done. We may have crossed over the Red Sea and got away from Pharaoh, but we're still in the wilderness and we still need to get to that promised land. And as we know from the people of Israel, not everybody who crossed over the Red Sea crossed over the Jordan. Not everybody who left Egypt made it to the promised land. And we got to fight the good fight of faith to the end. To that day when we stand before God. Philippians says, not that I've already attained all this, as Paul writing, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, Forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the Apostle Paul writing. I'm not there yet. I'm not everything I should be. I'm not perfect. I, I'm not all the virtue I should be. I'm not, I, haven't, I haven't done everything I need to do. There's more I need to do. But there's one thing I do. I forget what's behind. I forget where I did good. I forget where I did bad. I forget the mistakes. I forget the ups and the downs. I'm not looking back. I'm not focused there. I'm pressing on towards the goal for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Don't sit there and beat yourself up for every mistake and every sin you ever did. Don't sit there beating yourself up for the time you really let God down. That's behind you. Forget what's behind. Let him forgive it and strain towards what's ahead. Focus on where you... You can't change your past. Not one ounce of it. But you can affect your future. Fight the good fight. Take hold of faith and don't let go of it. Salvation's in front of you. Free gift given by God. Grab it. Don't let go of it. Pursue it. Pursue virtue and righteousness. Don't get caught up in all that funny stuff going down in the city. Don't get caught up in greed. Don't get caught up in lust. Don't get caught up in that stuff. Lay hold of eternal life. That's what you're called to. It's the only thing you can get. And give it to others. It's the only thing you can take with you. Only thing that matters to Christ was souls. And that's what ought to matter to you. If you got any sense, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Well, when were we called? <laughs> now, this is the New King James Version here. Lay hold of eternal life to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The word and there is the Greek word chi, and it ties those two things together. In other words, when did you, when were you called? When you confessed. See, the, the and there puts those things together. And so in the, the new, nearly inspired version, trying to make that clearer in English, because we don't understand what the word means in Greek, and we don't, the, word, the word and isn't as important in English as it is in Greek, and, and those two things being tied together there, it translates it, and accurately, a decent translation, take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You see, that chi there ties those things together. When... Did you, were you called to eternal life when you confessed? Well, why is, why is that so important for me to point out? Why am I belaboring this point? 
because that refutes Calvinism. Calvinism says that you're called. And because you're called in one of the elect, the Holy Spirit zaps you with faith and makes you believe and then you confess. It has the calling before the confessing. Whereas the NIV and the New King James and especially the Greek make it plain that when you're called is when you confess. And see, confession, then calling is the biblical order. Calvinism is or Reformed theology, I'm sorry, we don't use Calvinism anymore. Reformed theology has, has called and then later confess. And in a million different examples like that, Reformed theology or Calvinism gets the order wrong. God calls you, in a sense, when you confess the gospel. So when are you called? That's an important question that you need to answer. God gives life to all things. So um, he charges him. I charge you before Christ who gives life to all things. Notice who gives life to all things. Well, God. Well, then it says Christ does. So what does that mean about Christ? Christ is God. And this is one of the many evidences for our Jehovah Witnesses friends that Jesus is in fact God. Look what it says in Acts 15, uh, 17, excuse me, 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life, everyone life and breath and everything else. So who gives life and breath everyone else? God does. God is this, he is the giver of life. In 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. By the way, if you ever want to know, is there resurrection? Uh, Samuel believed so. He sends the sunshine, he sends the rain, the joy of living, death's final pain, justice, anger, and gentle love. They all fall like rain, fall from above. Let it fall, let it pour. Open the floodgates of heaven's door on a sea of sorrow and puddles of pain. Let it fall. Let love reign. God sends it all. Bad, good, everything. Some people say, well, God didn't cause the hurricane, you know, blah, blah, because people want to blame God. Well, with this evil God of yours, you know, the atheist, well, he caused the hurricanes. And so some people say, well, God didn't cause that. It was just natural. No, God did. Yeah, God, God caused that. You're saying God caused death? Yeah. Disease, mm-hmm. Sickness, yeah. Blindness, mm-hmm. Sicknesses that kill babies, yep. He cursed this whole world with death when Adam sinned. He damned the whole place. It's condemned. He does it. Yeah. And he's also the one who forgives and gives grace and gives a way of an escape and even though we don't deserve it, dies on the cross for us, came down and shed his blood for us and offers us a way out of it. We caused the problem with our sin and he punished for it, but he also provided a way of escape. He does it. He gives death, he gives life, he takes to the grave and he rises up. He's the one in control of it all. He is the giver of life. And that's why... Paul is saying, I charge you in, in front of the guy who's in, 
who decides your fate, Timothy. The one who gives life and gives death. The one who judge your fate. The one who's in charge of your destiny. I charge you in front of him. Do what he said. He's saying, look, you're going to be judged by this God who owns you. He made you. And then He bought you with His own blood. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. He, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. It's all His. It all belongs to Him. And He determines who lives and who dies. Who's saved and who's lost. Who's damned to hell forever and who's raised up to eternal life. He makes the call. And He provided a way in His grace and He didn't have to do it for you to have eternal life. Now you better be true to it. Hold to that faith. Fight that faith. He offers salvation. Now take hold of it, Timothy! You're a man of God. Pursue righteousness and godliness and holiness and faith. Stop pursuing money. Or pride. Pursue the good things. Because you're going to stand before God and give an account. God gives life to all things. John 18, 36-37, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate, and Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the very reason I was born and came into this world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate didn't answer Annas. He only answered Caiaphas when Caiaphas used a legal maneuver that forced him to answer. And in order to obey the law of Moses, he had to answer. He answered Pilate when Pilate conjured him to talk. But most of the accusations that others made against him, he didn't answer. Jesus only answered when he was legally required. But he did confess to Pilate who he was. He confessed to him that he was king. Not a kingdom of this world. But a heavenly kingdom. And that he was the truth. Jesus stood before someone who God the Father had given the power of life and death over him. A guy that was going to kill him. And he confessed the truth. And he was saying... He, so. Now, Paul is saying to Timothy, look, hold on and fight the good fight of faith. Be brave and courageous. Give your confession. You gave your confession and you were called when you gave your confession. Now live up to it. Remember Jesus, He confessed and it led to His death and His execution. What was it Jesus confessed to? That He was what? Oh, so you are a king. What did He put above His cross on the top of his cross as the reason he was condemned Jesus' confession leads to his crucifixion which leads to our salvation and if we want to bring the message of the cross to people we also have to faithfully confess in the face of persecution he's saying look follow Jesus in his confession. 
I charge you before the one who's the giver of life, but also the one who confessed who he was unto death for you. Who died for you, Timothy. Keep this commandment. Well, how long? <laughs> how long do we got to keep this commandment? He said, till Christ returns. Look at Revelation. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you the truth, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. When it talks about the crown of life there, it's not talking about a royal crown. It's talking about how when they had their Olympics back in the day, they put that laurel wreath on them. It was a crown of the laurel flowers and, and leaves and you would get that you didn't get a gold or a silver or bronze you got a laurel wreath if you won and people went into competition and worked hard and for this crown that would fade but we're not working for a crown that'll fade we're working for a crown of life that'll never perish spoil or fade and if you'll just be faithful how long Till you die or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. Till the return of Jesus, be faithful. His charge was, Timothy, fight that good fight and don't quit until Jesus comes back and takes you out of this dump. Till Jesus returns for you, fight! Pursue righteousness and faith and love. Pursue the good things. Not money, not pride. Keep this commandment. How long? Until Christ comes back. And then we get doxology number three. Paul and his doxologies. Here's our next one. He is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Why can't we see God? Because of our sin. Look what it says. Revelation 17.4 They will wage war against the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus, right? Did I hear Jesus out there? Okay, Jesus is the Lamb. But the Lamb will triumph over them because He is the Lord of Lords and the... So who's the King of Kings, Lord of Lords? So who's this doxology about we just read? Jesus. Jesus is God. With Him will be called, chosen, and faithful. It's Revelation 19, 16. On His robe and on His thigh, it's talking about Jesus, He has His name written... King of kings, Lord of lords. Written on his thigh. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So who's this doxology about? It's about the King of kings. What's that mean? That means he's immortal. Jesus is immortal. Look at Micah 5.2. This is a prophecy about Jesus' birth. This is one of the uh, key prophecies that talk about his coming. Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler of Israel. So it's talking about the Messiah, the Holy One, the means Messiah, whose goings forth are from old, from 
everlasting. And it has a little note there in the scripture. And if you go look at everlasting, it can mean eternity. His origins are from forever. You see, Jesus always existed. He exists. And he always will exist. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, he was, he is, and he evermore shall be. There was never a time when Jesus didn't exist. There was never a time when Jesus wasn't. He isn't created. He's part of the Godhead. He just is. Without beginning and without end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. He is it. By Him, all things were created that have been created. Nothing was made that He didn't make it, it says in John 1. He is the express image of the invisible God. He is God in the flesh, both God and man. He is God come down in human form, born of Mary, of the virgin as prophesied in the city, prophesied whose origins are from everlasting. He is the immortal God in the flesh. And don't let your Jehovah Witness friends tell you any different. He comes from unapproachable light. Psalm 104, verse 2. Who cover yourself with light as a garment who stretch out the heavens like a curtain? See, God stretched out the heavens like a curtain. Whenever, whenever the Bible talks about the heavens and space, it always talks about it as like it's cloth. Made of cloth. One time it says that he's going to roll up the heavens like a scroll. Well, back then scrolls were made out of what? Cloth. It, he stretches out like, and it's like a garment, other places say. And today, when, you, when people talk about space, and from Einstein on in the last 120 years, they talk about the fabric of space. Because as we study science, we see more and more that it's like a fabric. And that's exactly the terms that the Bible uses. God's the one who did it. He's the one who stretched out the immense, beyond our ability to comprehend or see the end of universe that we live in. He stretched it out. And he wraps himself, covers himself with light. We cannot approach the speed of light. According to Einstein's theory of relativity, the closer you get to the speed of light, you become infinitely large and infinitely heavy. In fact, if you got to this, past the speed of light, you'd be everywhere at once. What does the Bible say about God? He's everywhere at once. He's wrapped himself in light. He created light. He's the one that said in Genesis 1, let there be light. That was Jesus who said that. The one who died for you. Who loves you. Who says he wants to forgive you. That's the God we serve. Remember what he said to Moses? You cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. He's too holy. He's too powerful. He's too wonderful. He's too perfect. 
the mere sight of Him as sinful men and women would kill us. We couldn't see God. He lived in unapproachable light. We couldn't get to Him. He was beyond us. Our sin kept us from Him. Yet He longed for fellowship with us. What was God going to do? We couldn't go to Him. So He came down to us. In the person of Jesus Christ. He emptied Himself of His divine form. Philippians 2. And took on the form of a servant. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That's the God we serve. We couldn't get to Him. He was in unapproachable light. We couldn't understand or even look at the Father. We couldn't understand the fullness of His nature. He was too wonderful. He was beyond us. We needed an interpreter. We needed someone to reveal the Father to us. He was beyond us in unapproachable light. This unseen God says in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. How do we know what the Father's like? Because Jesus the Son revealed Him to us. Look at Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The way we can know what the Heavenly Father is like is because Jesus is the image of God. He gives us the picture that we can understand. He translates it into a vernacular we can comprehend. Not that anyone has seen the Father except He was from God. He has seen the Father. So nobody has seen God the Father. We've seen God the Son, but no one has seen God the Father except Jesus who revealed Him to us. In John 14.9, Jesus said, I have been with you so long and yet you have not known Me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? See, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father translated for us into human form who lives this perfect life of love and dies for us on the cross, is buried and rose again. And that's how we can come to know the Father through the Son. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. God had to become flesh and come down to us because we couldn't get up to Him. And then John says that when we see Him, we'll be like Him. The day is going to come when we see Christ face to face. Where we will see God. And it says to Him, to this one, be honor and everlasting power. Jude one twenty five To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. That's the doxology of Jude. Jude's doxology says what about God our Savior? He alone is wise. Is Jesus wise? Yes. Jesus is wise. So He has to be God. To Him be glory and majesty, dominion and power. Does the Bible say that Jesus has been given all power in heaven on earth? So Jesus is therefore God. Jesus can't receive all glory and power when it says that all glory and power go to God. Both now and forever. 
Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Who created all things according to John chapter 1? Jesus. Jesus is God. This doxology is talking about God, and Jesus is part of that. Don't let your Jehovah Witnesses tell you anything else. Jesus is God in the flesh. So, he gets kind of sidetracked with telling Timothy uh, to focus on Christ. He does his little doxology. He says, I'm, gonna, I'm calling you in front of Christ to do this. And then he gets so excited about Christ and about God, he goes into his little doxology. He, he just busts into praise mid-topic and then he says, well, I better get back to my topic at hand where I'm talking about greed. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Nor to trust in the uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, Storing up for yourselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. Now what did he tell Timothy to do earlier? To lay hold of what? And now he's telling, now you tell the rich to do what? Lay hold of eternal life. You can't serve both God and money. Remember that? Jesus said that twice. We saw it in Matthew. We saw it in Luke. You can't lay, be chasing it after and pursuing money in that filthy lucre. You can't be laying, that dishonest game, you can't be laying hold of that and laying hold of eternal life. You can only be grabbing hold of one thing. Are you grabbing hold of eternal life? Or are you grabbing hold of money? Which is it? Which God do you serve? The God who created all things? The immortal, invisible, life-giving judge of eternity? Who died on the cross for your sins? Who confessed His righteousness before Pilate unto His death so He could save your sorry self with all the sins that you did? Or are you going to serve money that you can't keep, that won't reward you, that will pierce you with grief and misery and drag you down to damnation? Which God are you going to serve? Choose today. If God is God, then serve Him. If money isn't God, then serve it. But make up your mind. And so he gives some instructions to the rich. Now, just in case you think this isn't for you. Oh, this is for the rich. I don't need to pay attention to this part. because I No, this is talking to you. You are the richest people in the history of the world. In the richest country in the history of the world. And the poorest person in this room is richer than 98% of the world. And when compared to history, you are richer than 99.999%. Driving home in your car to your heated home, air-conditioned home, with your television and your cell phone, your microwave oven, your shower massage, the ultimate of human convenience. 
your air fryers and your remote controls because we're too fat and lazy to even get up and change the channel. Our computers and our internet, convenience upon convenience, opulence upon opulence, wealth upon wealth. No. This passage is talking about you. I'm on a fixed income. Yeah, lucky dog. You know how many people in their elderly years were on a very unfixed income and lived in absolute squalor and poverty in their old age and died of starvation? You are rich. I don't care if you live in a cheap mobile home. You're rich. I don't care if you have to drive a, a rusty old beater. you still got a nicer ride than anybody had before cars were invented. You are who this is talking about. In case you're wondering who Paul's writing about here, it's you. It's me. Because everybody in this room, relatively speaking, is rich. We are the richest people in history. You eat better than kings ate a hundred years ago. I can look at you and tell you're eating better. I ate some of it. I was out there. I don't know how many times I've heard stories of missionaries and people they would come from communist countries and come over to America and they'd go in an American super, uh, supermarket and just cry. Just weep. When they saw the opulent, I mean, the food. The opulence. The wealth that we have. It's unreal. This is for us. Be humble, not haughty. The poor plead for mercy, but the rich answer harshly. The problem with wealth is it makes you prideful. You think you're a little bit better. You don't have to answer gently because you got money of your own and quite frankly, you're a little bit smarter than the poor people and you're a little bit better and they're not quite as good as you. One of the sins that goes with greed is pride. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. A haughty heart leads to destruction, and riches often make people arrogant. You ever see the arrogant statements of rich people? The tone-deaf, stupid statements that come out of their mouth? The arrogance? They are, because they were blessed in life and became successful, they must be wiser than everybody else. Don't let your wealth and success and the fact that you're a rich American make you think that you're better than some poor people in some other country. Don't think God loves you in America more than He loves the people of Ukraine or the people in Russia 
or the people in the Middle East, or the people in the poor people in Mexico. Don't let your wealth make you haughty. Be humble. A danger of wealth is haughtiness and pride. You're rich, so it's a danger for you. Check yourself. Trust in the living God, not in the uncertainness of riches. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Be careful what you put your trust in. The reason that the, the rich are haughty and pride is they think they're secure in their wealth. Well, let me tell you something about wealth. It's not secure. Proverbs 23.5 Cast but a glance at riches and they're gone, for they surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Fly like an eagle to the sea. Yeah, that's what your money does. You just look at it and go, oh, wait, where'd it go? It flies off. I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to catch a bird so bad. I remember being behind Treaty Church of Christ trying to catch a bird, running around trying to catch birds. I never did catch a bird. That's the way people are with money. Oh. And then they do catch it and they go, oh, I got you. Wait, come back. You're not going to keep your money. It's not secure. And the fool takes his security from wealth. And then he loses it. Do not plan around your money. It's uncertain. And even if you get a lot of it and keep it and store it away somewhere can't, somebody can't take it, they'll just print a whole bunch more of it, cause inflation, and won't buy you nothing. Rich in good works, not just money. Be rich in good works. Look what Hebrews says. Do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. If you've got extra, it's because God gave it to you to share. If you have two coats, give one of your coats to somebody who doesn't have one. If you've got two meals, give the extra one to somebody who doesn't have one. If you've got extra, it's not so you can build bigger barns and store up greater wealth. He gave it to you to use. Help somebody else. If you're rich, make sure that you're rich towards others. Whoever has this world's goods and sees a brother in need and shuts up his heart from him and does not, does the love of God abide in him? One of the things at Christ Church there in Whiteland that we decided is there shouldn't be anybody in our community that goes without a meal when we have so much. So we all buy a little bit extra when we go to the grocery store each week and we put it in this little thing and it's in the front of our new, our new building right there on US 31, right next to Casey's Pizza is a little, we call it a blessing box. It says take what you want or take what you need, leave what you can. You open it up and there's canned food, there's cereal, there's peanut butter and jelly, there's bread, there's shampoo, there's toothpaste, there's toilet paper. Non-perishable items. Little, our own little grocery store. We fill it up on Sunday, come back on Wednesday, it's about empty. We fill it up on Wednesday, come back on 
Saturday or so. If it's low, we'll fill it back up. We'll fill it up on Sunday. And people come and take. We put it in the newspaper, put an article in the newspaper, told people about it. And if somebody's hungry, they go, well, what if somebody comes and take stuff they don't really need? Well, then that's on them. But we've got so much. We can just set it out there. That's how rich we are. And none of us have gone into the poorhouse or starved or done without with our families by doing this. None of us have, none of us have been like, oh, I don't know, I'm going to pay the bills next month because of the blessing box. No! It's nothing. It's just a, each one of us buys a few extra canned items or a little something here or there. Throw it in there. we got plenty. They're not killing us. And yet, that community knows if you need to eat, there's food. How can we, with so much, let somebody in America go hungry? Rich and good works, not just money. And be eager to give, not to store up. Remember the guy? He was rich and he said, my barns are full, I can't fit it all in. So he tore down his old barns and built bigger barns. Now he had these huge barns full of grain and animals. And he said, ah, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take easy, drink it easy, be merry. Oh yeah, let me book a cruise. I'm going to live it up. I'm going to got the easy life now. I'm rich. I don't have to do anything anymore. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then those who things which will and then whose will those things be which you have provided so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards god now is it wrong to have a savings account or to have a retirement plan no but is it wrong to have a savings account and a retirement plan and not be rich towards god yes is it bad to plan for your retirement is it bad to plan for your retirement and not be generous to other people? Yes. The problem is not that he had a retirement plan. The problem is he was greedy and he was not rich towards God. That was the problem. You need to be rich towards God. Oh, and I'm over. Um, I'll need to be not be greedy with your time and let you guys go. Uh, we'll pick up here uh, next week. Um, but let me say this before we go. The ironic thing is, the Bible says if you'll bless others, God will bless you. And if you'll refresh others, God will refresh you. And the irony is, you don't have to be afraid to share your material blessings with others because God will replace it. God will take care of you and your needs. You be, take what you have and give some of it to others. Be generous. And He will bless you for that. And if not in this life, even better in the next. If you give material things to people in need and God blesses you with material things here, that's a blessing. But if you're really, really good and you're really, really generous and God gives you an extra blessing, He won't 
reward you for it here. He'll wait and reward you for it in heaven. And there you'll keep it. Here you won't. If you're lucky, God won't bless you for your generosity here. If you're really blessed, He'll wait till heaven. Father in heaven, thank you for our time together tonight. Bless us, send us home with joy. Um, Help us to pursue righteousness, not money. In the name of Christ, amen.